Luke chapter number 21. We looked at verses 1 through 4 last week. Then we're going to pick up in verse number 5 and work our way down through verse number 19. Luke 21, verse 5. God's word says, And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which you behold, the days will come, in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another, that they shall not be thrown down. They asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. When ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in divers places, and famines, and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not be an hair of your head perish. And your patience possess you your souls. Let's pray. Father, we're glad for your word. As we think of the passage that we are in this morning, it is... Uh, Rather shocking. In fact, were we the modern church to put out an advertisement to draw more people to our situation here, likely we wouldn't use such a verse. But Lord, as you are conditioning your disciples for what they must soon face, this is exactly what you told them was going to happen. And it's what we saw happen. So Lord, as We gather here this morning calling ourselves your church. Pray that we would examine ourselves and wonder if this is truly what we signed up for. May you bless this time from the reading to the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The doctrine of last things is theologically called eschatology. It's not an important word. It's not a word you have to know to go to heaven. But that's the word, if you want to know it. In this passage, we receive some information from Jesus about these last things. He is speaking to his disciples in what we call the Olivet Discourse. Now, verse 37 and 38 are why we call this the Olivet Discourse. They say, in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. So we get this idea that leading into what we call Holy Week, this time that Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified and resurrected. He is spending his evenings out toward the Mount of Olives with his closest followers coming into the day, teaching the people, going back out at night. And so we get this idea that as they're making these trips back and forth, these are the things that Jesus is teaching to who we would now call the apostles. Now, no matter someone's view on eschatology, no matter someone's view on the timing of the last things, one thing is certain, Christ will return in glory following the signs that he's listed here, and he expects his people to be ready for his return. This is what I want to communicate to you before anything else this morning. Christ will return in glory. He will come following the signs that he has laid out. And he expects us as people to be ready for his return. So whether you find yourself here this morning, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, don't know millennial, panmillennial. Know this. 
If you're a child of God, you should be awaiting excitedly the return of Christ. And you should expect these things to be what are in the last days. Now, the last days, we would say, began from the time of Christ and they will end at the return of Christ. So we've been in the last days for thousands of years now. And that's all right. But we want to consider some of these things this morning in the section that we are dealing with. We left off last time with the widow's might. We move this time in verse 5, 6, and 7 up into Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. And all of this under the larger heading of Jesus teaching about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, for those of you new to our church, I do not pick my text based off society. I didn't decide to preach on the return of Christ because of an earthquake in Turkey or a Chinese balloon over western Alabama or anything else going on in the world right now. We just finished up verse 4 last week and we're in verse 5 today. And when I get to verse 19, we're going to stop next Sunday. Lord willing, we'll be in verse 20. Amen? We're just going to go through the Word. This is what we're doing. But I think it is pretty unique that here we are, a few years removed from a pandemic. There's unrest. There's fear. There are wars going on. There are rumors of wars that might be going on. There's been earthquakes, earthquakes going on in major ways in other places of the world. Hurricanes have hit our own coast here. Tornadoes have hit right where we live here. And we wonder what to do. We think about what's going on. How should we react? Well, I think Jesus lays this out clearly for us. Now keep it in the context. Verses 1 through 4. Last time Jesus talked about this widow's might. And he taught little is much. And he teaches that up against verse number 34. As he says, take heed to yourselves. Lest at any times your hearts be overtaken, overcharged with what? The cares of this life. And then the return of Christ catches you off guard. So his first point that he makes up against the return of Christ and being ready for it is don't be taken with the cares of life. And the first lesson was see giving as proportional from God's perspective and not just the portion that we are to be giving or not giving. I noticed some of you this morning after I taught on giving pretty, pretty strongly last week, you looked right at me. You said, putting it in, putting it in. No, nobody did that. But I hope you took the larger meaning from that text last Sunday. It's not about the, the dollars that you put in this plate or the dollars that you give in benevolence. And, and I hope you're doing other giving, by the way. Not just putting money in the offering plate and saying, well, I've done my part. Are you supporting any other good ministries? Do you give some, to, some people poorer than you directly? Do you, are you benevolent? I think these are good things that Christians should be doing with their, with their money. But I want us to know the lesson there is not that. The lesson is we get so overwhelmed with how big the cares of this life are. What's going to happen next? How am I going to handle this? What am I supposed to do? Jesus said here, it wasn't the big things that humans had laid out. It was, it was the small things. Now, if you read from verse 4 to 5 here, you get the sense that some were... Refuting Jesus' point there. And they used this great temple that was built as their proof for this. Notice this. So verse 4, he says, well, verse 3, Of a truth, this poor widow hath casted more than they all. Verse 4, For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God, but she of her penury have cast in all the living that she had. So Jesus' point is, and those who had plenty gave a little bit. wasn't a big deal. But somebody says to this, And as some spake of the temple... And how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. Now we don't know who actually spoke that. But somebody in Jesus' hearing began to speak and say, well, well, hang on a minute there, Jesus. <laughs> what do you mean she gave more money than they all? You couldn't build all this with the two mites she put in. They're making this case here that the only reason that this great temple had been built was because some were able to give a lot. Are they wrong? No, they're exactly right. And I don't think Jesus is trying to say that they're not right or that it was wrong for people to give a lot. I think his point is, see, you're just that preoccupied with temporal things. You're just that preoccupied with material things that will soon pass away. 
He's going to teach them here that the, the days are coming, that the very temple that they used as their proof of, look how much we've done, is going to be leveled, wiped off the face of the earth, torn down to rubble. AD 70, a Roman guy named Titus comes in. He just has them just, there'd been a fire. The, 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 the temple had been partially destroyed from this anyway. And he just says, tear it, tear it all the way down. And they do, they, they tear it all the way down. Not many years after Jesus teaches this. Look at verse 34 again. Take heed to yourselves. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life so that that day come upon you unawares. Surfeiting, I explained to you last week, is, is just this, it's, it's up against drunkenness. You understand drunkenness. is this idea that we consume a substance that Initially takes the edge off, but before long kind of has a staggering and stumbling and boy say, Phew, this is way better than having to deal with the realities I was having to deal with before. Well, surfeiting would be a version of that in regards to stuff. A, a great temple, stained glass windows, comfortable chairs, hymnals, your house, your car, your bank account, your boat, your four-wheeler. Nobody does four-wheelers anymore. You're side by side. Whatever the things are in your life that make you feel comfortable. Don't hear me. I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm saying Jesus is pointing out to the people of his day and saying, don't be so consumed with those things that you, you're not ready for the return. And so verse five, they gloried in the temple. They looked at how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. An author named Trent Butler tells us that in the time of Jesus, repairs continued on the temple to fulfill the dreams of Herod the Great, who had rebuilt the temple along with other massive building projects. He, he put 80 years of work into this. A historian named Josephus, probably more familiar to you than Trent Butler, says Herod adorned the temple with white marble stones. Note this, up to 67 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 12 feet high. I don't know. Daryl, how tall is that wall there probably, would you guess? Is that about a 12-foot wall? Maybe 16. Jimmy, do you know, Tim? Do you know? That's 16 up to the pitch? Yeah, okay. All right, so, so somewhere in that, that height, these marble stones that they used here were at least that high, in addition to being 18 feet wide and 67 feet long. I think from... Front to back in here would be 80 feet. And I think wide to wide were 50 feet. I could be wrong on that, but that seems about right. So these things were long enough that we couldn't lay it this way. And here we'd have to lay it that way. And there are multiple ones of these marble stones. Y'all are just proud of our stained glass windows, weren't you? And then we read about this. The special gifts, these offerings that decorated this temple also included silver and gold gates, silver and gold doors. Beautiful Babylonian tapestries. And yes, I did practice pronouncing tapestries this week. Because how are we supposed to say it? Tapestries. Yeah. What's wrong with the rest of the world? It's a tapestry. No, it's a tapestry. They have these beautiful Babylonian tapestries that veiled the entrance over this temple. And on and on and on you can go. So verse 5, they're pointing this out to Jesus. Well, up against that in verse 6, Jesus says, this is just all going to go away. And we don't think like that as humans. We, we don't want to think like that as humans. We like for there to be some permanence in life. But what is your life, James says? It is a vapor. It is here today and it's gone tomorrow. And he doesn't throw that out there as something to be shocked about. He throws it out there as something to sort of look forward to. Jesus says in verse 6, As for these things... What you behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, you got to understand hearing that through their ears versus hearing that through our ears. When you hear that through our ears, we say, yeah, that's right, because we know that happened, AD 70. But hearing that through their ears, who do they think Jesus is? The one, right? They say, oh, he's the one. But when we think he's the one, we think Messiah, Redeemer, Lord. They think 
conqueror of the Roman occupation who's going to put us back rightfully where we should be in the global scheme of things in the world. So some would hear that as, oh, he's such an insurrectionist. We should be very careful with this. Is he going to tear down the temple? Are his followers, these zealots, are they going to be the ones to, what is he talking about here? He goes on and he gives some clarity. But I could see how they could miss his point up against their greater point. Jesus, what do you mean this widow who gave her two mites gave more than her? Look, look around you. You've been out doing carpentry too long. You've been out with your fishing pals too much. We've heard of your great feats, but that great catch that you had was nothing up against this. Just look around you here. Some heard this and they wondered. Verse 7, they asked him, say, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? Now, Jesus is going to answer that question. But he's making a greater point overall. He goes from verse 3, her little is proportionally very much. Verse 5, Jesus, maybe you don't understand. Verse 6 and 7, he says, no, you guys don't understand. This is all going to go away up to verse 33 and 34. Now, I haven't spent much time in verse 33, but you've got to take that in with verse 34. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What is the most important thing? The word of God, which stands forever. How should I live my life? By the patterns of this world, by the wisdom of this world? Well, in some things, fine. I'm appreciative of things that have changed over the world and made my life better. Anybody here this morning ready to give up your indoor plumbing? No? You're good with it, right? So we won't call everything the wisdom of this world bad or wrong or we don't want to embrace it. But at the same time, when we're patterning what we think now through eternity is going to be, as one of you so keenly pointed out to me recently, those of us with eternal life are already living our eternal life. It's already started, right? We, 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 we're not careful. We say, well, that's later. And I'm going to be like this now. And I'll, I'll be like that then. It's not how it works. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's words will not pass away. So what do we need to do? Take heed to yourselves. What specifically? That you're not overcome with the cares of this life and unprepared at his return. So he goes from the destruction of the temple in verses 5, 6, and 7. And they ask him, well, what are the signs of this going to be? Verse 8 through 11, then, he talks to them about false signs. So verse 7, Master, when shall these things be? What sign will they be when these things come to pass? And he said, verse 8, Take heed that you be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And the same time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. So for those who were saying, well, we, we want to believe you, but when will we know? How will we know? His answer is not, well, here's some things you should look for. His answer is, be careful that you're not fooled by these things that other people are going to tell you to be looking for. J. Vernon McGee, who I'll tell you in the reading of his commentary here, I completely disagree with him on some things here. And that's all right. I don't only read from scholars I agree with. I like to read from people on either side of either issue. But I do like what he says here. He says the characteristic of the times would be that there would be false Christs, which is a feature of the age in which we live and has been since he was here. There were false messiahs in his day. And today there are those who claim supernatural power. Although they, walk, although they talk a great deal about Jesus, they move themselves into his place and take to themselves the glory that should be his. That's good. Jesus is saying here, don't be deceived by those who would get in the place of Jesus. Now I'm going to take you back to faith. Because some of you in here, you lack faith. You're, you're atheistic or you're agnostic or you're just a scoffer. And you already thought this, so I'm just going to bring it to light. So you're telling me not to follow those who say they are the Christ, but you're telling me to follow the Christ who tells me to follow him. Which one is it and which is right? Well, that comes down to one little thing. Who is God? 
I tell you to follow the Christ who is God. So what does Christ instruct his followers to do? Take heed that you are not deceived. There will be a lot coming. And there have been a lot that have come. But he says, take heed that you're not deceived. Now John wrote to us in 1 John. Flip there with me really quickly. 1 John chapter 2. Hold your place. 1 John is right before Revelation. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. You got to know the books. Oh, I skipped one. What did I skip? All right. I knew that. I was just checking you guys. I was trying to sing the song in my head. The kids have been learning a song to teach them the books of the Bible. And I was trying to get it going in my head and I couldn't get it going. I was going to sing to you. The Holy Spirit just didn't want y'all to have to sit through that this morning. So he wouldn't give me it. 1 John 2.18. Little children, it is the last time. Now when would we think John died? In the 90s. Not the 1990s, not the 1890s. The straight up 90s. Jesus lived up maybe to the 30s. The church age started right around in then. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s were kind of the... Well, when we, we talk about the early church, we, we think John would have been one of the last living apostles and it was very old. We don't have Bible for this, but we have church history that will tell us that the preacher John, this apostle that wrote this book of the Bible here, he got to where he was so old that he couldn't really preach anymore, but he still had them kind of prop him up in front of the church. And his whole sermon would be, little children love one another. That's all he would say. That would be his whole sermon. Amazing. All right, so here's, here's this guy, and here's what he says. Little children, it is the last time. 90. He said it's the last time. What would that guy think if he lived today? I think he might have a different eschatological point of view than every one of us in here today. I, I think that for sure. He says this is the last time, as you, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, I'm not a preacher who is completely against Christian films, but when I am preaching, it is annoying sometimes when I have to fix your thinking on the Bible because of something that was done poorly in a Christian film. And your brains like the Christian films better than you like reading your Bible. So we get our theology from those films and we try to make the Bible prove it there. When we hear the word antichrist in our minds, we go to some slick dealing businessman in a back room somewhere who's making these national world deals. He might become a president or he might become a world ruler. And this is the antichrist. You don't hardly find that that guy in the Bible. Now, there are some people in the end times that you do find the beast, the false prophet. You, know, you find these characters who play out in the last time. But what you guys are being instructed about through Jesus this morning is what John is writing about here. Anyone who is an anti-Christ. What does that mean? Somebody define that for us. Not Christ claiming to be Christ. There are a lot of those. Muhammad. Joseph Smith. A local preacher who's misusing the scriptures. Me, if I'm misusing the scriptures. A book that poorly portrays the Trinity. These things are anti-Christs. Well, John says here, we're living in the last times. You have heard that antichrists shall come. Well, I'm telling you, there are many antichrists. This is how we know that it is the last time. Now, how in the world did John know that? Jesus told him, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it down. 1 John chapter 4, flip a few pages over. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Now, in that regard, we talked on Wednesday night about angels, and we said that 
there's a portion of scripture where a person wanted to bow down before an angel because they were just so impressed with this angel's appearance and the thing that they said. And this angel from God says, don't you bow down and worship me. This is reserved for God alone. And then we took that further and said, but should that angel have said, yeah, that's right. Worship me. We would know that's a demon. Right. This is what John is talking about here when he says, try the spirits. There are influences in your life. As a believer, you are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. And daily you are to be being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit means dying to yourself, being sound in the Word, being prayed up, and living out the Great Commission, and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you in truths in all of these regards. But as we try to be Spirit-led people, we've also got to be trying the Spirits to make sure that it is God through His Word, and that is our trying ground, right? This is our measurer. This is our ruler, the Word. It tells us if we're straight or not. Up against all of the other voices that speak to us in the world in which we live. Any sorts of media, any sorts of literature, things that talk into our brains to give us information. Spiritual warfare. John says, don't believe every spirit. You try the spirits, whether they are of God. Why? Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now go back to Luke chapter 21. Jesus tells his followers, Take heed that you be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. Now, he doesn't actually use the word antichrist there, but he says they are not Christ, but they are claiming to be Christ, or they are stepping in a role that only he should fulfill. From there, in verse 9, 10, and 11, he says there's also going to be wars and natural disasters. Now, be careful that you don't misunderstand. Verse 9, 10, and 11 is Jesus saying, when these things happen, it is the end. Now go back, go over to verse 28. We're going to get to that next week. But he does say there, verse 28, and when these things begin to come to pass, do what? Look up and lift up your heads. Why? For your redemption draweth nigh. Now we will understand that to mean when those things begin to happen, we should expect the return of the Lord. But here... He says, verse 9, But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. We don't talk like that anymore. What, what would we say? The end is not by and by. The end is not... I don't know what y'all all said. That sounded like gibberish to me. We're all speaking in tongues? I'm going to interpret. You all just committed. No, I won't do that. It's not now. It's a, somebody said now, here, yet. I think we said all of those were all together. Then he said unto them, nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be in divers places and famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs that fearful signs shall there be from heaven. So there, there will be antichrists. There will be wars and natural disasters. Well, when would the end be? How would we know? Well, he says first here, the temple would be destroyed. And then there would be false messiahs. There would be false rumors. There would be wars. There would be uprisings. There would not only be conflict among the nations, but there would be these great catastrophes of nature. Now, where did your head start to go here? You say, oh, we're seeing this happen. Earthquakes, famines, epidemics, terrors, great signs from heaven. But, but as you think about this and you say, oh, this, we're surely in the last time. I'm going to agree with you and say, yes, we're in the last time. But so was John. Was he wrong when he said in 1 John chapter number 2, somewhere in the 90s or the 80s, this is the last time? Who was right, John or us? Well, we, we got him, right? Because we've, we've lived longer into the future than he has. So surely we're more in the last time than he ever is. Preachers always like to say we're... We're closer to the return of Christ than we've ever been. 
What is your view, preacher, on eschatology? Well, we're closer to the return of Christ than we've ever been. Well, what does that mean? That means I don't want to dig into it with you. Because Christians like to split hairs and form camps over these things. And I think that in itself is a distraction against what? The cares of the life. So that you're not prepared for the return of Christ. But Jesus doesn't say when you see these things look up. He says, in fact, they're going to become some coming and saying they're the Christ. Don't go after them. Don't be deceived by them. And then there's going to be these things happen on earth. Don't be afraid during these times. What do you mean don't be afraid? War, commotion, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, signs from heaven. How are we not supposed to be afraid of that, Jesus? And why wouldn't we be afraid of that? That's definitely something divinely happening. But he says these are not signs. Verse 9, into the verse. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not Yet. Grant Osborne clarifies well here. I want to read you from him in R.C. Sproul. Osborne says, when he says that these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away, he means the end will not follow immediately and be brought about by such events. Sproul says, although the wars and commotion accompanying the siege and destruction of Jerusalem by Roman forces under the general Titus will be traumatic, those events do not signal that the consummation of history is imminent. International conflict and natural disasters will continue, which is verse 10 and 11, along with persecution of Jesus' followers. How long will there be earthquakes on the earth? Until when? Until the new earth. Now just to be clear on how uncertain these things are, People in all of church history, both the sound and the wacky, have predicted that they were in the end. I mean, let's be honest. If you were living, and maybe some of you in here were, but if you were living during World War II and you begin to see not just any random people on the face of the earth, but God's people gathered up in camps and being mass exterminated, the Jews, would you not have said, this is it, we're in the end? I'm going to give you a list of names. Some of these names are going to shock you. Some of these names you will personally confirm. No matter where you are in your eschatological position, think through these names. Jim Jones. Well, hang on. How many of you never heard the name Jim Jones? That's a new name to you. Okay. That's a good thing. David Koresh. All right. That's getting better. Harold Camping. Now, remember, I'm not saying that all these guys are bad or all these guys are good. I'm just giving you a list of people throughout church history, some more ancient, some more recent, who've made predictions or who've had teaching toward we are in the end. Jim Jones, David Koresh, Harold Camping, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, Tertullian, pastor, he died in 220 A.D. Augustine died in 430 A.D. Luther died in 1546. D.L. Moody died in 1899. Billy Graham died in 2018. All of these made such predictions. Now, I'm not saying, oh, put these guys on your no-no list. Maybe David Koresh and Jim Jones. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw help camping under the bus, too. <laughs> what I'm saying is, it's appropriate for the church, at any point in church history, to say, we're in the end. John said he was in the end. Jesus said, when these things happen, you will know that you are in the end. We certainly would say, just given the timeline of human history, we're in the last times. But when you see Antichrist, don't be deceived by them. And when you see wars and natural disasters and famine and epidemics happen on the face of the earth, don't be afraid of them. I just want to appoint or to affirm Jesus's point here of the slippery nature of timing and sign seeking in regarding in, in terms of these things. In reality, what we should focus here on here are the four things that Jesus lays out clearly in these verses. Number one, he said in verse eight, don't be led astray. Number two, he said in verse nine, 10 and 11, don't be afraid. 
Number three, he's going to teach us in verses 12 through 15. Don't miss the opportunity in such times to be a witness. Verse 18 and 19. Number four, don't give up. Don't be afraid. Don't be led astray. Don't miss the opportunity to be a witness. And never give up. So we go from the destruction of the temple to the false tellers to the natural disasters happening on the face of the earth and the wars. And then in verse 12, he begins to talk about persecution. And he lays out the persecution in two different ways. Notice in verse 12 through 15 that he talks about persecution on the whole, like the church as a whole, or in the federal sense, or the official sense, or the national or governmental sense. He says, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Then in 16 through 19, he talks about this same persecution, but on the personal level. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinfolk and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not a hair of your head perish. And your patience possess ye your souls. So in addition to the admonitions, don't give up during this time. Don't miss the opportunity to be a witness. And certainly the church has seen this play out throughout church history and we, we live in a time of religious freedom now, but we could see that tide turn and we could be under persecution again uh, on the whole. I bet you that some of you have experienced personal persecution individually by some of these ways that Jesus lays out here, parents, brethren, kinfolk, friends. In addition to Jesus saying, don't give up during this time and don't miss the opportunity to be a witness Here he gives words of encouragement. And throughout scripture we find words of encouragement toward this end. Verse 13 he says, And it shall turn to you for a testimony. He's saying these are God-ordained times for you to be a witness. So verse 14 and 15 says, Don't fret over what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you words. Now, you don't like to study your Bible and learn. That's okay. Some of us aren't wired that way. This is not your excuse to say, See? Jesus said, don't even worry about it. When I need to know something, he'll just give me the words to know. I heard someone say recently, oh, I've heard some schools are letting prayer back in schools again. And someone said, as long as there's math tests, there will always be prayer in school. That's a good joke. (laughs) But don't treat your faith that way. Lord, I haven't studied for this test. I did this in high school. Spanish class. I prayed for the gift of tongues. (laughs) Oh, Lord. I don't even know what conjugate means. And the professor has said here, conjugate these verbs. I ain't never done none of that. Conjugating, Jesus. Amen, Jack. Jack is in Spanish class right now. C. Know the word. Study the word. You have a responsibility to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a worker that needs not be ashamed, who can cut it straight, rightly dividing the word of truth. There's no excuse for sluggardness and laziness in that regard. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not doing right by God. If you're not daily in prayer, you're not doing right by God. But in this instance, the church is being persecuted federally, And you're a spokesperson in some way. He says, don't lose sleep over it. I think of Paul and Silas. They just sat around in the prison singing all night. I mean, they were going to be put on trial and beaten the next day. They should have been, you know, in our world, we say they should have been studying up, figuring out what they were going to say. They just sang hymns. They didn't lose any sleep over it. How do we know? Jesus says here, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Mark says it differently, but along the same line. Mark chapter 13, verse 11. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak. Neither do you premeditate. 
But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak you. For it is not you that speaks, but the Holy Ghost. So we have this comfort that should we find ourselves in that position, we don't have to be afraid. The Holy Spirit will give us the exact words to say in the moment that needs to be heard on behalf of the church. Here's what I want you to be aware of. We, most of us in here fully intend to live our lives and die and never want to be persecuted. And I'm not just giddy to be persecuted myself. But I don't want us to mistake what Jesus is saying here. He said to his followers, it played out in the early church. I think it wouldn't be too far-fetched for us to expect it to be played out in our day or in our children's day or our grandchildren's day that there come this type of persecution. And what about your faith? Are you so bound down with the cares of life that you say, well, I can't get all involved in that or I'll lose my job. And I got to pay the bills and I got to buy groceries. You're bound down with the cares of life and you won't be prepared for the return of Christ. Now, verse 16 and 17 seem to contradict with verse 18 and 19. But I need you to, to see these verses in the grand context of like chapter 20, chapter 21, and then we know from 22 on Jesus goes to the cross, right? So chapter 20, we looked at the resurrection. The Sadducees, they come to Jesus. They didn't even believe in a resurrection, the afterlife, the second, the second death, eternal life, those kinds of things. And they, they ask him these questions trying to trip him up doctrinally. And he, he multiple times just proved to them that there is eternal life, that there is life after this life. From there, Jesus teaches about the widow's mites, little as much. and She gave her all, that kind of a thing. Up against the theme of the cares of life, verse 34, versus the eternal from verse 33, right? This is the context. So with that in mind, in verse 17, what does he tell them? You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Verse 16, he goes so far as to say, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. Now the they there is unique. 12 through 15, we would say it's on the federal level. It's a larger organization. It's a big group. But 16, who's he talking about there? Parents, brothers, kinfolk, friends. Some of you, they're going to put you to death for your faith, he says. So how does he go from there to verse 18, which says, but there shall not an hair on your head perish. Now, I know some of you are so holy. You say, well, because it's Jesus and he said it and I believe it. But I struggle with that one. You're saying that someone near and dear to my heart might put me to death. But not a hair on my head's going to get... This is contradictory, Jesus. I need more explanation. Verse 19 is a little bit of an explanation. In your patience, possess you your souls. He's saying there the saints will persevere. But how? Revelation 2.11 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Revelation 26 Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This is to say, should you suffer death for the name of Christ in this life, it really won't matter because you're never going to die again. You're going to live forever. That's why we can read of the martyrs. I read of one just this week that He'd been sent home to be burned at the stake. He had stood his trial for preaching. This might have been John Owen. He had been sitting, no, no, it wasn't John Owen. It was, uh, I can't think of the guy's name, but I'll get it for you eventually. He'd been sent, but, he, but he'd been tried for the faith. He wasn't going to stop preaching. He wasn't going to change. So they sent him back home and they were going to burn him at the stake. The man who was in charge of making these fires, that was the guy's job comes to him and says, I'm real sorry about what I'm going to have to do here. And he says, I believe the Lord gives us work and the Lord gives us rest and you're just doing the work that the Lord has put before your hand. Now, how do you say that to the man who's just about to start this fire that's going to burn you up? He said it because he knew it is not death to die for the believer. 
I'm going to go to sleep in this side. It's going to hurt for a minute. And I'm not going to like it. It's going to be grievous for people around me. But I'm going to wake up looking at Jesus. There was one martyr who was granted a lunch with his brother. And his brother just didn't know how to handle this lunch. He said, I just can't think straight. You're about to die. I'm heartbroken. I'm beat up. And he said, you just seem at peace about this. And he said, well, brother, don't you worry about me. I'm having lunch with you, but I'll have dinner with Jesus. I know facing death, that's a little easier said than done. I understand that. But I want to encourage you to this end. Give up the cares of life. Take no thought what you should eat or what you should drink or what you should put on. Because God knows the things that you have need of. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. But if you get so overwhelmed with the cares of life, you won't be prepared at the return of Christ. Let me give you a few more things and we'll be done. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Let's see how the early church lived this out. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 10. Paul writes to Timothy, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all, the Lord delivered me. What's another way to say what Paul says there? Not a hair on my head was harmed. Then verse 12, take this verse to heart. Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Do we just apply that verse to their time and not ours? Do we have convenient eschatology that says, oh, well, we're living in a different age. We're living in a different era and we shouldn't expect these things in our lives. Or do we get honest with ourselves this morning and say, the church that is being godly and its society should expect the society to turn against them. Yes, Paul says, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Look at Acts chapter 5. Now, don't lose sight as we go through this. I was watching Andy Griffith last night. And the state inspector had come by the jail. And it wasn't old Sam. It was usually old Sam who went fishing and hunting with Andy. And it was a new guy. And Barney was just wrecked. Because there were no criminals in the jails. And there was no, the guns weren't put where they're supposed to be. And they hadn't swept that day. And this state inspector was going to write a bad note about them. And Andy was having a good time giving Barney a hard time about being so upset about this state inspector who was going to give him a bad report. Barney said, well, at least you could put on a hat and tie and be in proper uniform. So Opie came. He let Opie, the five-year-old son, pick out the hat and tie. It was a fishing hat and a church tie that didn't match his uniform there. And so he looked like a clown. And Barney said, what are you doing? And he says, oh, Barney, don't worry about it. State inspector comes in. He gets in Andy's face. Andy's got a birthday cake for Otis. Now, if you don't know Andy Griffith, I'm sorry for you. Otis is the town drunk. Barney went and hauled him in so that they'd have somebody in the jail while the state inspector was there. And with the birthday cake in his hand and his fishing hat on and his goofy tie on there, singing happy birthday to the town drunk, the state inspector just loses his mind. He's with Barney and he says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to tell this person on you and this is horrible, blah, 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 blah. And he just says, well, that's a gloomy thought. He says, you shouldn't think so gloomy about things. Up against all I'm saying here, you could be thinking pretty gloomy about things. Do I have to get burned at the stake to please the Lord? How about just crack open your Bible in the morning? And here's the lack of gloominess that can come into your life. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? 
than believe in Christ. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Amen. Where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas said, Lord, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, because I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So don't think gloomy thoughts. Give up on the cares of life. Trust the Lord. Be willing to face these things. But no, this is just a simple thing up against that day. Acts 5.38 And now I say it to you, refrain from these men. This is Gamaliel, right? I think Gamaliel was Paul's worldly instructor. They've been brought in. They're trying to figure out, what do we do with these guys? We keep telling them, don't you preach anymore in that name. Get the timeline here. Jesus has gone away. The Holy Spirit has come. The church has started with a boom. The Jewish tradition doesn't know what to do anymore because it's overtaking them. It's turning their world upside down. They put them on trial and they're trying to figure out what to do. And a wise Jew, maybe converted, maybe not, he says this. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, the apostles of Christ, and let them alone. For if this counsel or if this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. Lest happily you be found even to fight against God. Anybody want to pick that fight this morning? I'm not picking that fight. And to him they agreed when they had called the apostles and beaten them. Now, I thought that was just comical, their way of thinking here. He says, refrain from these men, leave them alone. And they said, that's right. That's what we need to do. Bring them in here. Now let's beat them real good and then leave them alone. (laughs) They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council. Look at this. It doesn't say gossiping. It doesn't say griping. It doesn't say grumbling. It doesn't say trying to figure out how we're going to change our apologetic so that we can defend the faith without speaking the name of Jesus. It says they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Man, oh, to be like those guys. What what happened? And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. You can go back to Luke. I'll read you another verse. First Peter chapter 3, 13 and 14. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So Jesus teaches us here. Don't be led astray. Don't be afraid. Don't miss the opportunity to be a witness. Verse 18 and 19, don't give up. The saints will persevere. Let's stand and pray.